Hello, and welcome to Checks and Balances, Threats to This American Election. This weekly podcast is sponsored by Checks and Balances, a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers dedicated to bolstering the rule of law and opposing the degradation of American legal norms. My name is Paul Rosenzweig, and I'm your host. Joining me today as my guests on the podcast are Ryan Goodman from NYU Law School and Stuart Gerson from the law firm Epstein Becker Green. Our topic today is the Department of Justice, and more specifically, what the department should do or should not do with respect to prosecution decisions in the run-up to the November election. At Checks and Balances, we believe in the rule of law, the power of truth, the independence of the criminal justice system, the imperative of individual rights, and the necessity of civil discourse. We believe that these principles apply regardless of the party or the person in power. America is assuredly a government of laws, not men, and our goal in creating checks and balances was to remind the nation that free speech, a free press, separation of powers, and limited government are the bedrock of the American experiment. We hope this podcast will advance the rule of law and defend the coming election. We want to make sure that as many Americans as possible understand what the law allows and what the law requires. Our hope is to make sure that you all Americans who are legally entitled to vote get the opportunity to do so. And most importantly of all, our goal in creating this podcast is to counter the false narrative that is being advanced by some in the public space. This is the narrative that the American election is at risk. This is the narrative that the election is going to be a fraud. This is the narrative that says that the only legitimate result is the one where a particular candidate wins. Fostering free and fair elections is not a partisan issue. It's not a right-left issue. It's not a conservative or libertarian or liberal or progressive issue. It's an American issue. And so this podcast, my guests will be people who understand what the consequences of this election are, what the laws relating to the election might be, how the federal government will interact with the elections over the next coming months and in the aftermath, and in the end, there will be people who will be able to give our listeners the straight scoop on biased, fair, accurate legal information about what the law entails and how to make sure that every legal vote counts. Our guests today are Ryan Goodman and Stuart Gerson. Ryan Goodman is the director of the Center for Human Rights and Global Justice at NYU Law School. He is also a co-faculty director of the Center on Law and Security and founding co-editor-in-chief of Just Security. He is the Ann and Joel Ehrenkranz Professor of Law and a professor of politics and sociology at NYU. Stuart Gerson is currently a lawyer in private practice and a fellow member of Checks and Balances. Previously, he was appointed acting attorney general of the United States during the early Clinton administration after having served as President George H.W. Bush's appointee as assistant attorney general for the Civil Division of the Department of Justice. He's also served as an advisor to several presidents. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us on. Thank you, Paul. Our first effort is going to be to discuss a little bit about the news of the day before we dive into the substance of the Department of Justice. And there are two things that happened in the past week that I think warrant commentary and your reactions. Stuart, the first of those is the decision of the Department of Justice to substitute itself, to represent President Trump in an ongoing defamation suit against him 
uh, by a woman named E. Jean Carroll, who has accused him of uh, sexual assault while he was a private citizen and of defaming her by denying that uh, that 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 the conduct had occurred and saying uh, actually that she wasn't his type. Um, If the department succeeds in substituting itself for the president, my understanding is that that might eventually result in the actual dismissal of her lawsuit. So first off, tell us a little bit about this, how this happens. Tell us about your experience in the civil division with other similar cases. And and tell us what you think of the Department of Justice's decision to try and intervene. Thank you, Paul. Let me say at the outset that the issue here is going to be, was the uh, statement that the president alleged to have made of a defamatory nature something that was in the course of his official duties, something that was in the interest of the government of the United States? The mechanism for evaluating all of this is the Federal Tort Claims Act. Uh, That represents the waiver of sovereign immunity in a limited sense. Uh, Various torts uh, of a negligent nature uh, can be the subject uh, of government substitution and the ongoing representation of an individual who was a government official who acted in the course of his or her uh, official duties. The Tort Claims Act does not waive sovereign liability uh, for intentional torts, including defamation. And so your original statement uh, about the dismissibility of the action if the, if the government intervenes is accurate. Um, historically, the civil division of the Department of Justice, which I headed, is the uh, one of its functions uh, is the administration of these requests for representation. And indeed, it's routine on the part of even low-ranking officials all the way up uh, to uh, President Reagan, for example, in with respect to the Iran-Contra case and, lit- and litigation that uh, generated from it. And indeed, I can think of several instances where uh, uh, Congress people were represented uh, under the Tort Claims Act for allegedly having committed acts of defamation. But what they were talking about was things that had to do with foreign affairs, things that were within the realm of the government, which dis- what distinguishes the case uh, of uh, uh, President Trump and the uh, allegation that he defamed a woman who claimed that uh, uh, he had raped her in, in the dressing room of a, of a department store in New York, is that that subject has absolutely nothing to do with the affairs of the government. Uh, the, the matter existed, the underlying matter existed way outside of anything that the government or the president was responsible to do. And so uh, at some point, a court is going to rule on this. Uh, I would suggest respectfully that while there is plenty of precedent uh, for the government to substitute itself for uh, governmental officials, uh, this isn't one of those cases because the activity alleged has nothing to do with the official duties of the president. So, so what happens then, Stuart? Assume that a court, uh, uh, this has been removed from state court to federal court. Assume that the federal court determines that uh, the president's alleged actions are not within the course of, uh, within the scope of his employment. And it determines not to uh, accept the department's representation of President Trump. Is that decision appealable in the federal system? Oh, yes. I mean, it, it, it would be the denial of a motion to intervene under the federal rules of civil procedure, and it would proceed uh, through the appeals process in the federal system. So, so we can anticipate that at a minimum, 
the department's intervention here has served to appreciably delay Ms. Carroll's state suit and that we will not see a uh, comprehensive and final order from the federal courts until uh, sometime after the election. Well, that's absolutely absolutely right. You've anticipated what I was about to volunteer, Paul. Uh, that will be the case, as was the case with regard to Vance and Mazers, where where uh, uh, presidential potential uh, subjectivity to subpoena was decided, uh, but ongoing processes will delay any of that uh, until after the election. Uh, uh, it's all part of a strategy uh, on the on the part of the president and the attorney general. We'll talk about other other areas, but it includes the Durham investigation, false statements about uh, uh, the vulnerability of mail-in ba- uh, balloting, and a, a host of things where this administration is attempting to uh, affect the uh, outcome of the election. Well, that is unfortunate. It's unfortunate in terms of the election, but it's particularly unfortunate for Miss Carroll, who's whose day in court is now going to be delayed. Um, let's turn to the second of these, and, and let me bring you in, Ryan, to this. Um, Nora Danahy uh, was uh, essentially the deputy to John Durham. Now, we're going to spend most of our, our time talking about the Durham investigation today, which is an investigation into uh, the investigation of President Trump's connection to Russia. Uh, but let's start with a simple thing. Uh, Ms. Dan- Danahy has uh, resigned her post without giving uh, any explanation, any public explanation. Uh, public reports suggest that it may have been related to her disaffection with the course of the Durham investigation, but we don't know for sure. So, Ryan, what are we to make of this? And based on your experience, how uh, rare is it uh, for... Uh, people like Ms. Danahy to resign in protest? So um, listeners might think it's commonplace because it's occurred so many times in recent months uh, with the Trump administration, but it's exceedingly rare for a senior attorney on a case to suddenly resign, not just withdraw from the case, but actually resign from the Justice Department and suddenly, and without any um, advance warning, without any transition set up, and that alone is a red flag that she would do so. And then we do have the reporting from the Hartford Current that she did so in part out of protest that the um, office was being pressured to develop and present a report before the election. Um And there are also other kind of telltale signs here, which is apparently she submitted her letter of resignation on Thursday night. And in the letter, it does not say, you know, for family reasons or other um, explanations as to why she was uh, stepping down, which is normally the way that one would do it in order to avoid or minimize uh, negative press or the media and the public thinking that it had to relate to Um, something more potentially corrupt. So, you know, that's another piece of it. So the very fact that she has resigned midstream of this case, and there is reporting that um, it was done on her, on the basis of a protest is highly significant. And it suggests something illicit is going on with respect to the pressure that um, Bill Barr's attorney general appears to be placing on the Durham investigation to produce 
something like a report at a minimum uh, before the election, which is also then corroborated by New York Times and Washington Post reporting that says that this pressure is happening right now. So Ryan, um, there's I've seen other reports suggesting that one thing that might happen in the near future would be for Congress to uh, call Miss Denny as a witness and ask her uh, 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 some questions about her resignation. How much of what has happened inside the investigation would she legally be, be able to talk about where she called as a witness? So I think it would be very difficult for her to talk about some of the details. And we saw this with the resignation of the uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, uh, where the transcript is available, but he, he's, he's not going into many of the details. And part of that is because the Justice Department is not going to allow him to do so. So the agreement from the Justice Department for him to testify was under those kinds of conditions. So there's that part of it. But on the other hand, um, she might well be able to talk about um, pressure that she got uh, from Maine Justice, uh, because that wouldn't be about necessarily the details of the investigation. And that could be crucial. Or another piece of this that is very important is that she has stepped down. So that potentially frees her up um, to talk to the public or to Congress directly. And we have a very good example of that, uh, which is the uh, senior lawyer on the Roger Stone investigation, uh, Jonathan Kravis, not only withdrew from the um, team, but then resigned from the Justice Department out of protest for the pressure from Bill Barr and wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, because he was then free to discuss those kinds of details about the mishandling and the public corruption uh, that was behind the scenes of uh, changing the Stone um, sentencing. So one last uh, one last news question, and this one's for you, Stuart, uh, before we get to, to more detailed discussion. I was in the department in the 80s and the 90s, and in my experience, I never saw anything like this uh, at all. Uh, you were, you've been in the department uh, back in the day and have studied it since then. Did you have any personal experience with any senior prosecutor ever quitting like this uh, from a case up until the Trump administration? I can be even more categorical uh, than Ryan simply because I'm older and, as you say, go back a lot farther, even to the time of, of Watergate. But particularly when I was the head of the civil division, we uh, represent the government in most of the affirmative lawsuits uh, that, that are brought uh, uh, against uh, uh government policies, some of which are very noxious to the, to, to the lawyers who, who work on, the, on these cases. But I will tell you that uh, of the literally thousands of controversial cases uh, that the civil division handled under my uh, administration, I never uh, had a lawyer who was assigned the case uh, asked to leave the case. They all represented that we were making a good faith defense of statutes or policies of, of the government. They might not agree with them, just as a judge might not agree with something that he or she upholds. And so this, as Ryan correctly says, is a very unique matter. I doubt whether the uh, 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 woman who, who, who resigned, uh, uh, Ms. Ms. Danaher, will, will be able to speak in any detail about, uh, about what went on. And indeed, that problem relates to something that I think you're going to ask about in a, in, in a while, and that has to do with commentary on ongoing investigations. Um, the Durham investigation itself is a, is a dubious proposition, and we can discuss how and why that, that's the case. 
Uh, I would not be happy about uh, uh, this res uh, resignee, if you will, uh, talking about the case any more than I'm happy about Durham and Barr talking about it. Uh, this is something that uh, uh, should not be allowed to infect the election in in any regard. But I will ha will say that uh, uh, her resignation uh, raises more than a, a red flag. It shows the improper intervention of the attorney general. It, indeed, uh, Stuart, what you say brings up one of the ongoing themes of this podcast, which is, in general, I am of the view that you do not defend norms of behavior by breaking those norms. You defend those norms by continuing to adhere to them. And so like you, I, I too would be, uh, would find it problematic if Ms. Danahy were to break the norms of behavior by speaking to issues that would not normally be public, which allows us, I think, to turn to the substance of our discussion, which is uh, looking at the Department of Justice and what it does or should do with respect to prosecution decisions in a run-up to an election. Obviously, the context for our discussion today is the ongoing investigation being conducted by the Department of Justice under the leadership of U.S. Attorney John Durham. Durham is investigating how it is that the FBI came to investigate the Trump campaign in 2016. As such, it is basically an investigation of an investigation. The origins of that investigation have been examined by others, including the Department of Justice's Inspector General, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which is known as the FISA Court or the FISC, and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Thus far, the Durham investigation has produced one criminal complaint against an, a Department of Justice attorney who falsified an email relating to a FISA application. And as we've been discussing, one of Durham's deputies resigned last week under what I think it's fair to say are obscure circumstances. Nonetheless, many Trump supporters expect more from the investigation. They expect to see criminal indictments of others before the election. Democrats expect the same thing, but they call it an unjustified October surprise. Attorney General Barr has refused to rule out action by the Durham investigation before the election. Here's a clip of what he said earlier this summer when he testified before Congress. In our system. Under oath, under oath, do you commit to not releasing any report by Mr. Durham before the November election? No. You don't commit to that? No. So you I won't go by careful. Department of Justice policy that, Justice that you won't policy. interfere in any political investigations before the November election. We're not going to interfere. In fact, I've made it clear I'm not going to tolerate But under oath, you're saying that you do not commit to not releasing a report by Durham. I'm not going to. Any report will be, in my judgment, not one that is covered by the policy and would disrupt the election. All of that's really rather unusual. Those of us who've worked at the Department of Justice in the past, like Stuart and I, Think of a traditional rule for the department that nothing to upset the election should be done within 60 or 90 days of voting. And also the traditional rule that prosecutors don't issue interim reports. They issue indictments or they close their investigations. So, Ryan, let me start with you. Uh, though uh, You recently wrote an excellent lengthy article at Just Security. And for our listeners, the webpage is Just 
security.org, in which you looked at some of the history of the DOJ policy against election interference. So first tell us, yeah, what is the origin of that? When did that part policy start? So I think of it as two different policies. Um, one policy is uh, written down in memos from the Attorney General starting in 2008 and then reaffirmed every four years, which is that the DOJ should never publicly charge individuals or take any other overt investiga- investigative steps or disclosures with the purpose of influencing an election. So if their purpose behind bringing forward this type of action is to affect the outcome of the election, that's a taboo. And we can also get into the details of why it's not maybe just a policy, but it's also backed up by law. Then the second one that I think of is the 60-day rule and that you've just described. And the 60-day rule sounds similar, but it's not about having that, that purpose of affecting the election, but it says to basically not publicly charge or take any other investigative step or disclosure in the run-up to an election that could affect the election. And it's sometimes referred to as an unwritten rule uh, or norm. A good place that um, listeners could go to see its articulation is the Inspector General Report on uh, former FBI Director James Comey's actions in the 2016 election, because there's a few pages in which the Inspector General articulates uh, the so-called 60-day or 60- or 90-day rule. Um, But I would say that that rule, we at least know it's been in existence for decades. Uh, Some of the cases that I surfaced in the Just Security piece uh, were some paradigmatic cases in the 1992 presidential election. I should just add one other element that I didn't actually include in the Just Security piece, but I think it's worth noting as well in terms of like how far back in time we could go to the origins of this rule. It came to me through some reader feedback, which is for election law crimes, there's a specific DOJ manual on the prosecution of election law offenses like voter registration fraud And at least as far back as 1984 in that manual, it says in writing uh, that the federal government should not bring those kinds of election law uh, related indictments before the election. They should instead defer until after the election so as to avoid um, any kind of concerns that they might be affecting the election. So, so tell me, what's the justification for this? I mean, I, I get that you don't want to unduly influence the election idea very strongly, but one could also make the argument that uh, the public is entitled to know uh, about what they're voting on and who they're voting for. And if a prosecutor has you know, credible, thoughtful, important information about the potential criminality of a candidate or a candidate's party, that transparency would call for them to make that clear, even if it's a week before the election or, you know, a month before the election. So what's the justification for keeping stuff secret? It's a great question. And one could imagine the rule would be written another in another way, but this is the one that the Justice Department has settled on. And I think for a couple of very important reasons. Um, One is that the Justice Department must be seen to be impartial and be impartial when it comes to elections. So it should not be up to federal prosecutors across the country 
to decide for themselves uh, what the voting public needs to hear uh, before an election, and that it could be very dangerous if we go down that path. Um, and part of the problem is that especially if it's in those 60 days before the election, it doesn't give the defendant the opportunity to really defend themselves. They don't get to have a trial um, in which they might be vindicated um, or acquitted or in the indictment thrown out. And so it places this extraordinary power on uh, the side of the federal government to potentially deep six uh, candidates um, across the board if the federal prosecutors think that that you know, would be valuable. And they might also, that's the other problem here, rush towards uh, providing that information. And we wouldn't want that to affect or infect uh, their decision-making. And the thought is, unless there's something urgent, so it's not like it's a categorical rule, but unless there's something truly urgent, why not just wait until after the election so as to be sure that you're not affecting the election? And with the Durham investigation, it is very difficult, I would actually say impossible, to think of what would be the urgency of an investigation that's looking at actions that occurred four years ago to now suddenly try to produce an interim report unless indeed they were acting with the motive of trying to affect the election. And then we can get into, they might be you know, running afoul of law, not just a policy, if that's their motive. So Stuart, let me bring you in here. Um, I mean, you were uh, at the department for a number of years, including being the acting attorney general uh, in the aftermath of the Bush to Clinton transition. You know, how important is it from an institutional perspective for DOJ to maintain this policy of, of apparent neutrality? Well, I think that the department should maintain a policy of actual neutrality. Okay, the, fair the, point. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the, the tradition of the Justice Department is to be apolitical. In fact, there are two, age, there are two departments of government that, that traditionally have played no role in elections at all, uh, the Department of Justice and, and the Department of State. Uh, this administration is remarkable in the fact that the uh, secretaries of both of those departments have been very active politically. Uh, I subscribe to everything that Ryan said, and if you want to see how noxious uh, uh, pre-election uh, investigation reporting and, and in, indictments can be, uh, we can cite two uh, examples uh, within memory. The most recent, of course, is uh, 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 the deposed FBI Director Comey's uh, uh, conundrum, self-created conundrum with regard to statements that never should have been made about ongoing investigations related to Hillary Clinton. Polls tell us that that had a decided negative effect on Mrs. Clinton's uh, candidacy and, and uh, electoral prospects uh, uh, with her never being charged of anything. But the most egregious example of this, and Ryan and I have uh, exchanged information on this, on this subject in the past, uh, occurred in 1992 when the on the Thursday before the uh, Clinton-George H.W. Bush election, the then independent counsel, Lawrence Walsh, uh, released an updated indictment, uh, an amended indictment related to the Iran-Contra case in which he superseded charges, not against the president, but against Caspar Weinberger, 
who wasn't even in the Bush administration, who'd been a, uh, an official in the Reagan administration, and did that on, uh, on a few days before the election, right at the end of a week, the election the following, the following Tuesday. Um, there was a note that the independent counsel intentionally uh, had cited in the, in the uh, uh, indictment that mentioned that, that the vice president might have been aware, never proved, of something that had to do with Iran-Contra aid. There was an eight-point swing in the vote between uh, Thursday and the following Tuesday, a negative vote uh, uh, affecting the outcome of the presidential election. Uh, there can be no greater example of why this rule is an important rule. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a really good uh, historical uh, point. Uh, Ryan, can you cite, are there any examples of cases in which the opposite has happened in which uh, information that DOJ has concealed was subsequently disclosed to the disadvantage of the public, or is it a one-way ratchet? So um, I just want to add one other uh, piece before answering sure. that, because I think it's an sure. important um, data point, specifically on the question of what is the justification or rationale for the policy. When Attorney General Barr went before the Senate Judiciary Committee in his nomination hearings, he strongly affirmed the policy. And it's a remarkable statement on his part because he's acting so much, it seems, in contradiction of it now. So Senator Cornyn asked him, quote, it's almost your exact question, Paul. Are there policies in place that try to insulate the investigation and the decisions of the Department of Justice and FBI from getting involved in elections? Barr, yes, Senator, there are, Cornyn. And why is that, Barr? Well, obviously, because the incumbent party has their hands on, among other reasons, they have their hands on the levers of the law enforcement apparatus of the country, and you do not want it used against the opposing political party. So just, you know, a remarkable um, example of it. You know, I think there is a near miss um, example in history that misinformed the public. And that's the indictment of... Um, the, Republic, the Republican senator from Alaska, Ted Stevens, in 2008. It's a near miss because it is interesting that he was indicted 99 days before the general election. So it might, in fact, have been that the Justice Department was abiding by the 60 to 90 day rules because of that um, unusual timing. And then uh, the indictment is, uh, and he loses the election, and the indictment is thrown out um, after. November. Um, so that's a you know fairly good example where he was not able to vindicate himself in time, um, and the public was in a certain sense misinformed because what hang over him was this criminal indictment um, by the Justice Department, and that's another instance in which it um, shows you that when how badly things can go if the Justice Department gets involved or takes actions that might affect the election. I also you know, agree with Stewart on the example from 1992 with independent counsel Walsh. You know, that was the supplemental indictment comes down on the Friday before the election. There's no way for George H.W. Bush to truly defend himself in the maelstrom that <laughs> enveloped him uh, with the media over that weekend in time for the public to really suss out what the situation is. So I, I think that's another instance in which uh, we can see 
uh, the negative effects. Ryan, uh, and it's, it's interesting, Ryan, it's interesting also to note that as was the case with Ted Stevens, where the uh, indictment was thrown out in significant part because of misconduct on the part of the Department of Justice, uh, so too was the superseding indictment thrown out uh, with respect to the uh, Lawrence Walsh situation. That indictment later was dismissed uh, as uh, uh, alleging things that were outside of the statute of limitations, something uh, that the independent counsel clearly sh should have known about and clearly showed his intention to influence the election. Okay, so let's let's pivot a little bit from this and and ask not just about the policy against DOJ interference, but also about the general policies relating to coordination between the Department of Justice and the White House. Here's a clip of Mark Meadows, who's currently President Trump's chief of staff, talking about the Durham report and seeming to indicate that he has foreknowledge of what Durham is investigating. President Trump, we're all waiting on John Durham. The last time I was with you, Mark, you said, look, people should go to jail. We are going to see some indictments. Where are we on this? Do we know anything about John Durham and this criminal investigation and where this goes? Well, Maria, you've covered this for uh, for a lot longer than anybody else and probably are better informed than anybody that I know in terms of this particular issue. And, and we are still waiting on John Durham uh, in terms of any visibility in, uh, in the timeline. Uh, I, I don't have that. I can tell you additional documents that I've been able to review uh, say that a number of the players, the Peter Strucks, the Andy McCabe's, the James Comey's, and even others in the administration previously uh, are in real trouble because of their uh, willingness to participate in an unlawful act. And I use the word unlawful. At best, uh, it broke all kinds of protocols. And at worst, uh, people should go to jail, as I've mentioned previously. So so there you have it. The chief of staff has, uh, by his own uh, expression, seen documents that, in his view, uh, bear on the criminality of uh, a number of former FBI employees and or members of the Obama administration. And he's discussing it publicly on uh, Fox News with Maria Bartomioso. Uh Stuart, how unusual is it for the chief of staff to have access to that information? Let's leave aside discussing it in public because because that, that, that's a whole nother kettle of worms. How unusual is it for him just to even know what the substance of an ongoing investigation looks like. Well, it's certainly unusual, and it represents something else. I mean, look, I, as a conservative, I believe very strongly in the unitary executive. <laughs> there is only one executive, uh, but there are things that one does uh, as a prudential matter to uh, maintain uh, independence and maintain the, the, rule, of, the rule of law. Uh, not only does it appear that uh, the, the chief of staff uh, uh, had access to information uh, that only could have come uh, from the from the attorney general. He's the only one who reports to the White House. But that uh, the chief of staff is uh, a subaltern of the of, of the president himself. It suggests, at least to me, that uh, not only the chief of staff but the president himself has involved himself in the ongoing nature of the investigation. You know, in in Watergate, before there was a special uh, counsel before us, there was a, a special prosecutor. Uh, the case, the original Watergate case, was prosecuted by Earl Silbert and a and a, a team of lawyers uh, uh, that were assistant United States attorneys. 
At no time did they leak anything. At no time did they consult uh, with uh, the president of the United States. At all times, they reported to Henry Peterson, who was the career head of the criminal division of the Justice Department, and a strict wall was maintained, uh, even in a case involving the president himself. Uh, this is, is unprecedented. Uh, it's dangerous because what role can the president play in this? Only a political one. Uh, and it suggests what the underpinning, underpinnings of the, the investigation uh, are. And we can talk a little bit about that and where it figures into uh, uh, Operation Crossfire Hurricane and uh, I.G. Horowitz's uh, definitive report on the subject. So, Ryan, any history of this sort of coordination in the past? Um, it's so hard to think of any um, <laughs> that... It's, you know, the way I think of it as well is what Stuart mentioned, like the involvement, it, it suggests, you know, direct involvement of the president and the White House in the actual investigation in such a way that I think it does raise constitutional questions of the due process rights of these individuals, for example. But it's even hard to point to, like, I can't even think of a law review article that has discussed that or articulated the idea because it is so extraordinary. It's one of these instances in which we didn't know that we had the norm. We didn't think about the norm because it had never really been violated in this way. So yeah. it's it's hard. I'm hard pressed to come up with an example of it. Yeah, the closest analogy that I can think of um, is uh, the series of cases involving un, un, inappropriate command influence. Yes, uh, relating to military officers and and the in, intervention of the president in in a couple of cases and uh, of senior command officials in other cases. It's just not done, is it? That's right. In fact, I thought about that as well as the best analog that we do have uh, very clear rules of um, undue command influence in the military justice system. And sh that's in some ways the way I think of it. It's surely we also have that in the regular justice system as well. Um, and to, in, in some sense, create these firewalls out of constitutional interests, uh, not just out of like good governance reasons. So, so let me pivot and 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 ask you both to uh, kind of put on your crystal ball uh, glasses um, and, and look into the future, uh, and ask you kind of a related set of, of like three questions. Yeah, you know, the first is. What do you think is going to happen in the next 60 days with respect to the Durham investigation? You know, that's predictive. Um, how much confidence would you have in the independence and probity of whatever it is you predict uh, is going to happen? And uh, what should be the average American's reaction, our listeners' reaction uh, to whatever it is they might hear in the next, I guess we're down to 50 days now. So we're well inside the zone here. Um, let me start with you, Stuart, and ask you, you know, what do you think is going to happen and how? What, what should we make of it? Well, first, I don't know what's going to happen, but it would not surprise me uh, if there are further indictments and that there's a report that focuses especially uh, on uh, misconduct or misfeasance, at least, in the, in the FBI itself. Uh, there are a number of instances where uh, FBI policies and where FISA was not uh, uh, strictly adhered to. So it wouldn't surprise me. But 
what to think about it is going to be that that sort of thing is peripheral. Under normal circumstances, it would be handled administratively. It, it wouldn't involve the, the courts in any way. But it would be, this, in, in this case, what concerns me is the likelihood uh, that uh, it's going to be done to deflect the fact of uh, uh, that the Durham investigation itself is suspect. And let me, let me say why. I mean, you alluded to it in the introduction. There have been uh, at least three other uh, inquiries into the initiation of the underlying uh, investigation of the, of, of the Russian connection. Uh, all of those investigations have made it clear uh, that whatever misconduct or misfeasance there was on the part of the FBI did not deflect from the fact that there was cause to undertake the investigation that preceded it. Indeed, the thing that caused the investigation uh, to, to uh, be undertaken uh, with respect to Operation Crossfire Hurricane has been well disclosed. Uh, it involves the uh, Papadopoulos uh, revelation about a, 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 a tip from a foreign country uh, about uh, collusive activity. Uh, the country happened to be Australia. We know all these things. Uh, none of that uh, is in any way influenced by the fact uh, that there was some misconduct with regard to uh, the completeness of FISA warrants. Moreover, uh, the select Senate a committee on intelligence, bipartisan, that has dealt with this, uh, has issued now five volumes of the report that not only vindicate that uh, uh, investigation, but amplify it and uh, is now showing that uh, advantage was uh, uh, actually obtained uh, willfully uh, by, the, by, the, by the Trump campaign. So whatever we're likely to see is going to be a deflection uh, from the underlying fact uh, that uh, our electoral processes were negatively affected by the actions of, of, of state-sponsored individuals, an adverse state Russia, uh, done, I would say, collusively, if not conspiratorially, in terms of the, of the, of the law uh, by the Trump campaign. Uh, and that's what people ought to think about it. Ryan? So I agree with everything that Stuart said. Um, I, you know, I envision that the scenario in which this might come about is an interim report that is supposedly internal that Durham hands to Attorney General Barr and then Barr um, decides on his own to release it, to summarize it, to release it in highly selective redacted form. And that's what we're presented with um, to the public. I, and, you know, do I think that there'll also be criminal indictments? I'm not so sure. Maybe if they were actually able to track down the individual who leaked the, uh, Michael Flynn phone call with the Russian ambassador, because I think there's real criminal liability there. But I think we're probably going to get a report like that, and it's going to be in the next, um, it's going to be before the election. Um, and I guess I think a couple things that the American public should think about. So first is, it does, there's, there's what's ever in the actual interim report or Durham report, and then what Bill Barr says about it, and what President Trump says about it. And we've already seen how Bill Barr has acted in the past in misrepresenting the Mueller report where a federal judge said that he had misrepresented it and distorted the report in which Bill Barr misrepresented the inspector general's report on crossfire hurricane and fact checkers said that Bill Barr was providing the American public with very misleading statements about what the inspector general found. 
So I think that's one thing that people should be prepared for. The other one is just this strange paradoxical situation in which it's another form of projection in a certain sense. What do I think Bill Barr and President Trump will accuse um, former officials of having done? They will accuse them of having used the power of their office based on political bias to interfere with an election. And what will Bill Barr be doing? I think it is very likely that what he will be doing is using the power of his office to illicitly influence the 2020 election. Um, And so that what the story is and what the media tracks down and follows, you know, are they going to be going over the substance of what Bill Barr is saying or also what Bill Barr's actions themselves betray by violating these norms, potentially running afoul of U.S. federal statutes prohibiting from taking this action and uh, focusing on the process uh, of that, not just the substance of the allegations that he brings forward. And just one last thought is, I wish that they would actually bring forward whatever they found after the election. Um, Do it in early November after the election. And then in that political environment, no matter who wins the White House, I think many more people will be receptive to sorting out what on earth happened and figuring out whether or not the allegations are strong or not or credible and without any taint of this idea of politics having affected uh, the production of the report. Uh, You left out a couple. You know, Mr. Barr was also uh, credibly uh, uh, found to have misstated the summary of the Operation Legend criminal investigations and also recently uh, lied about a... uh, or misstated, let me say, uh, the results of an election fraud investigation in Texas pretty substantially. So I, I, I'm with you. I think that the American people should view anything that happens between now and the election with a healthy grain of salt uh, and with a skeptical eye and with the realization that it is like as not to be intended to be a, a, an influence operation uh, by the bar Department of Justice as it is to be a uh, legitimate exercise of Department of Justice authority. Uh, Paul, let me uh, uh, support what Ryan said uh, with with regard to uh, post-election revelations. The thing that concerns me the most, uh, uh, notwithstanding all the the statements uh, and and misrepresentations that you've just described, or Judge Reggie Walton's uh, uh, rather uh, uh, caustic review of the administration and the Justice Department's candor uh, with regard to uh, uh, Mueller-related uh, uh, documentation, uh, were the statements that Barr made at the outset of the of the Durham investigation, essentially saying that the Trump campaign was the victim of one of the great crimes, echoing what the president has had to say, something uh, brought about by the Obama administration. He's prejudged the whole matter, and uh, that doubtless is going to affect uh, what what the ultimate outcome is. A lot of people are raising questions about whether uh, uh, Barr and Durham are on the same page. I mean, Durham has had some uh, uh, high credibility in the in the past, and the fact that nothing has happened so far may well be uh, exemplary uh, of of the fact that there's no there there, uh, and that we may just see things that have to do with the FBI, not with the counterintelligence uh, uh, vital problem that uh, Crossfire Hurricane. Uh, uh, disclosed. So we'll have to see about that. But uh, this question of prejudgment uh, that infects the whole thing, vocalized prejudgment, prejudgment that we've heard is something that is of great concern. That's not what the Justice Department or the government 
ought to be about. On the other hand, uh, we have certainly seen uh, that uh, there is reform uh, needed in the FBI. Uh, I have a great deal of respect for Chris Ray, whom I've known for a long time. Uh, I think he is attentive to these things. Uh, and I, I think it is fair for the public to know and understand uh, how the uh, uh, chief criminal investigative authority of the federal government is, is being managed. And that should be something that the next administration deals with, not this administration now. Well, on that relatively optimistic note, um, we're going to turn to uh, good news that makes the week a little better, uh, which is how I want to end each each podcast. For me, good news is when the rule of law succeeds, uh, despite the challenges these days. And today I offer you a twofer. Recently, President Trump issued an executive order that purported to require the census to report a population number that did not include illegal aliens present in the United States and to use that lower number for reapportioning Congress. Last week, a three-judge panel rejected the president's order. The ruling is a twofer because first, it upholds the rule of law. The requirement to count all persons is statutory and has been the rule for more than 220 years. And second, because two of the three judges on the panel were Republican appointees of President George W. Bush, which tells me that the rule of law works and judges don't only vote for their party. And then on another smaller piece of good news, I learned today that there might be life on Venus, which is really a how cool is that sort of good news. Anyway, that's a wrap for our show. Thanks for joining us. We'll be releasing a new show every Monday. This episode and all future episodes are available on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and anywhere else that you can download podcasts. We hope you'll subscribe. We'll also archive the podcast at cnb.org and if you want to find them on our website. As for feedback, we'd love to hear from you. The email is podcast at checksandbalances.org with hyphens between the words. Thanks again to Ryan Goodman and Stuart Gerson for joining us on today's podcast. I'm Paul Rosenzweig, your host. Remember, as John F. Kennedy once said, certain other societies may respect the rule of force. Here, we respect the rule of law. <laughs> <laughs>